This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. In this episode, we have an interview with the founder and CEO of Aerosys. That company is developing an AI-based digital co-pilot for commercial and general aviation. In the news, Boeing resumes delivery of the 787 Dreamliner, a personal eVTOL that is classified as an ultralight. The U.S. Air Force wants to identify pilot competency requirements for eVTOL operations. The A-10 Warthog gets some modernization updates. Wheels Up partners with ATP to draw in pilots. The Regional Airline Association disagrees with ALPA over the pilot shortage. And the B-52H may receive a new designation. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 712 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and joining me is first Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group, and he's publisher at JetWine.com. Hey, good evening. And uh, I, I just have one question for the panel that's with us tonight. Um, does anybody remember what happened on episode 296? Because I've been straining my brain and I can't come up with it. I just thought maybe you guys might have remembered. So you're not going to tell us what happened. No, no, absolutely you just not. Wondered. I, I'm just wondering. Yes, um, I, I guess that could have waited until later. But I can hardly remember what we did last episode. Yeah, you and me both. I know it's that age. Speaking of age, we have Max Trescott with us. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hey, fantastic. Great to be here. And by the way, I can't answer Rob's question because I joined the show on episode 305. So I've only been here for yeah 407 episodes. So what what I know about pre-305. We're going to have to look it up. Also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. So um, there was a BT period, huh? Trescott? Before Trescott? Before that's Trescott. BT, that's... <laughs> Hi, everyone. Happy belated World Helicopter Day, which was the day before we are recording this on Monday. Um, and I promise you this will be a no blueberry pancake zone this week. <laughs> yeah. Famous last words. Also with us this episode is Hillel Glazier. He's our aviation entrepreneurship and innovation correspondent. Hillel, it's good to see you. Hey, glad for having me on. Appreciate, yeah. appreciate being here. All right. Well, we're going to start off with some of the aviation news from the past week. So is everybody ready? Ready from the West. Ready from the Midwest. Ready from below this Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> ready with some happy little clouds. All right. So, Rob, I just... So, so Boeing is resuming 787 deliveries, Rob. Well, for those people that are waiting for them, they're saying it's about time. But uh, the the delay in the 787 deliveries, uh, it goes back to uh, I don't I think what the 
It's been almost two years since Boeing has delivered a 787 because there were some quality issues that popped up. And uh, Boeing, of course, thought it would be, you know, just a little, a few ruffled feathers and we'll be back in, in business. But, of course, what they hadn't counted on was that the FAA had not forgotten about the MAX. And uh, they were not about to let that airplane in the air until every I was dotted and T was crossed. And right now, they're, they still haven't returned uh, the seven eights to uh, the mass approval methodology that Boeing used uh, prior to the 737 MAX accidents. FAA said, we want to look and approve every single individual airplane, which, of course, uh, just bogged Boeing down something fierce. And of course, the, the big deal really for Boeing was that you don't get paid until you deliver the airplanes. So uh, not only have customers been waiting, uh, but uh, Boeing has uh, been a little cash strapped. In January of this year, 2022, Boeing actually disclosed a $3.5 billion charge associated with the delay. And that wasn't all. There was an additional $1 billion in uh, added production costs associated with all this. So it's, oh, it's just been you know, one more horror show for uh, for Boeing. Uh, they have delivered one aircraft on August 10th, 2022. They delivered a 787-8 to American Airlines. But it looks like they have around 120 of these in inventory and uh, according to the air current, some of these have been stored for as long as three years. So, uh, you know, we talked about the 787 MAX backlog and how they needed to retrofit those. And, of course, there were more of those airplanes parked than 120. But still, that's a big backlog, something that they've got to work through. So those deliveries may not take place for quite some time. Oh, Absolutely. If I were taking delivery on a three-year-old airplane, I think I would want the three-year-old airplane price. <laughs> you know, oh, you know, sure. It should should be new, right, when you get it. If it's been sitting there for three years, to me, that's a, a partially depreciated aircraft at that point. There's some other issues as well. Um, the 787 flight deck windows are different than most other aircraft. Boeing, Spirit Aerosystems, and PPG Aerospace have been working on an issue, in fact, a manufacturing design change um, made to these flight deck windows on the 787. And apparently they are, they are clamped in, or rather they are not clamped in, I should say. Um, the windows are bolted in and they are a, um, a structural item. Uh, to the forward fuselage. So that's that's really different. So there's this manufacturing change, and this may cause the FAA to, uh, you know, take some time to approve that, which could turn the spigot off, if you will, again on the 787. So we'll have to see what happens. Uh, let's see. We have an item from uh, IFL Science. The title is, On Sale Flying Car Requires No License. And their sarcastic subtitle is, if you've seen how bad people are at flying drones, you know this will go swimmingly. But, uh, Rob, you know, the, the headline is flying car, but I'm not sure I would really call this a flying car. It, it probably is a stretch, uh, but 
we should mention it's a Swedish company that is uh, is building a product called the Jetson. And for those of uh, our listeners, probably a few of them, who may not go back far enough into the uh, uh, into history, as in the early 1960s, there was a, a a TV show that was extremely popular called The Jetsons, and it was supposed to take place in 2062 or something. But it was a very modern family that that scooted around in, in little cars and and on you know uh, things like powered skateboard sort of uh, craft, and it was just. The, the bee's knees. But again, that was uh, 60 years ago. And now they, they finally have an airplane, an aircraft, uh, named after the show. But as you said, uh, I wouldn't say that uh, a vehicle that is capable of flying 20 minutes on a battery charge is really much of a vehicle. I mean, it's it's fun to maybe go to the park with uh, or to a football field and fly around. Uh, you can't, they're technically ultralight aircraft, which means uh, they, they don't require a license. Yeah, I would agree. This is not a flying car. This does not look street legal. Uh, I don't see you know, wheels and you know things like that. I think they're just calling it a flying car when it's really, you know, an airplane. It's a cool thing, but it, it's, it looks like a big drone. It does. It's a single seat, personal EV tall, and uh, we have a video that they produced. Actually, a, a couple of videos we can put in the show notes. Uh, it's really worth taking a look at this. It does look like the coolest thing ever. Of, of all the interesting drone derived kinds of concepts, I don't know. This is the one that I'd most want to actually fly in myself. It's kind of like our Kitty Hawk flyers that we have at our at our museum, the American Helicopter Museum. I mean, they were twenty minute flight time, you know, and basically ten hours of instruction, no license needed. But they weren't very cost effective, and hardly anybody wanted to buy them, even though they learned to fly in them. So it's it's one of those things, dead end. But Rob, just so you know, that somewhere on this planet is. George Jetson being born because he is 38 years old in the Jetsons. <laughs> so this year would be the year George would be born. Mm. So just just, wow. just put that in perspective. So I don't think I know anybody else at all who knows that besides David <laughs> Vanderhoof. Yeah, but does anybody remember the music? Here's George Jetson, Jane, his wife, his boy, Elroy. But, but more to the point, what was the name of the maid or robot? Rosie. Oh, Rosie. Rosie the <laughs> robot. And, oh, and the dog. Um, uh, and the little Astro. boy, too. Astro, Astro the was the dog. Oh, Astro. Astro was the dog. George uh, Elroy. George Jetson's <laughs> yeah. birthday was July 31st. July 31st. <laughs> wow. Somewhere out there. Sharing so it with I do my brother and Harry Potter. But but think about it. For for those people that are even questioning this story, I mean, it's, it is it is absolutely viable. All you need is to remember that you have seven minutes out, seven minutes back, and you still have a six-minute reserve before it falls out of the sky. Uh, I mean, what what's impractical about that? 
And I don't think we'd even be talking about this since there are literally over 200 companies that are inventing similar products if it were not for the fact that they use the Jetson name. So to me, if, if we got to strip away the name, I don't think there's anything really remarkable about it. That was brilliant. So, yeah, you can order one for a deposit of $22,000 and a $70,000 final payment. So it's $92,000 for uh, one of these. I don't know. I might dip into the retirement savings for something like this, but um, <laughs> but it, 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 it almost doesn't. As he, as he straps it to the top of his camper. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can see I can scout ahead and see what. So, but that's what it would cost. Um, but, you know, there's no there's no need to, to bother because the production for 2022 and 2023 is already sold out. So if you, but uh, that's but, four, both I of them. Mean, yeah, exactly. They don't tell you what what the what the production run is going to be, but I'm sure it's either two or four. I don't know. Now this could be a trailblazing product, and so if it works out, I'm saying maybe we should just remove the requirement for pilot licenses for all types of aircraft. I mean, if it works out for this, then you know, why, why do we need pilot licenses at all? At the risk of um, jumping ahead, there is an interview I conducted in Oshkosh later in the. I guess month or next year, um, another company that's doing exactly this. And they claim that there is going to be a new category of aircraft that the FEA is working on. That's between certificated and light sport that this, that, and they're all aiming for that niche and that these aircraft given their redundancies and a whole bunch of other things are, um, are not meant for pilots. They're meant for the fly for the public to be able to fly. And I didn't try to get into exactly what do they mean by not pilots, but because right now the airspace can't handle anybody above 400 feet. That's not a pilot. So I have no idea what it is that they're going to actually achieve with these aircraft that don't have certificated pilots flying around in them. And they've already named the category, by the way, it's known as the, the vaporware category. <laughs> Yeah, well, we've got pictures. <laughs> yeah, it's flying now. But, all right, take a, like I said, take a look at the videos. Uh, let us know if you think this is really exciting, really crazy, or something in between. But meantime, let's talk about the A-10, because that's always fun. And the drive has an item. The A-10 Warthog's tusks are being sharpened for a high-end fight. And so we see the A-10 Thunderbolt 2, or the Warthog, is undergoing a modernization effort to primarily to support fifth-generation fighters. So, uh, David, the A-10, I guess it features lots of pylons. You can hang a lot of stuff on an A-10, and I think that's what they're looking at here. The A-10 is a truck. It's designed to carry lots and lots and lots of stuff. And if you think about it, it can carry probably the equivalent of about six B-17s worth of stuff at one time. And so it's got lots of pylons. So it's got a lot of, and for the most part, for the last 20 or so years, it hasn't been using all of its pylons. So if you want to use it as a relay or be able to support other aircraft, it might not be a bad orbiting relay station if you attach these pods on the on the wings 
and the fifth generation and, and to extend the range of the sensors for the fifth generation fighters. So, I mean, it's an interesting concept of keeping it out of harm's way and then using it as a relay station. Yeah, the article describes how they're looking at a couple of uh, different things like the ADM-160 miniature air-launched decoys, also the GBU-39B small diameter bombs. That's a precision-guided bomb that can glide dozens of miles and hit targets. And they also talk about a potential future possibility of the AGM-158. That's a joint surface-to-air standoff missile. So I think what they're what they're trying to accomplish is make use of the the capabilities of the aircraft without spending a whole ton of money on on development or creating um, you know new technologies to to upgrade it. And is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. I mean, it, it's it, it's. A lot of standoff capabilities. Basically, you're you're keeping it in safe airspace and using the weapons to go into the hostile airspace, which is a lot of the modern technology. It's a way to justify prolonging the life of an obsolete system. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> you did. All right. All right, moving on, AIN Online. Uh, Rob, uh, this is Wheels Up, partners with ATP for Pilots. Rob, what's Wheels or who is Wheels Up? Wheels Up is a uh, a pretty interesting company. It was uh, oh, it's probably less than a decade old, but they uh, essentially sell subscriptions to their Citations and uh, King Airs for people that need lift. Uh, you might live in the Chicagoland area, and let's say you take trips of uh, a couple hundred miles, three four hundred miles. But you do it regularly. You might go to Cedar Rapids and then sometimes up to Minneapolis and sometimes down to Indy or over to Cincinnati or Detroit or uh, Cleveland. And and you don't want to fuss with the airlines. So if you buy a subscription, a membership, they call it, to uh, Wheels Up, you can have an airplane to uh, seat uh, uh, five or six people and zip off to your destination. And they will, of course, uh, uh, arrange a, a pickup time. Within limits, of course. It doesn't mean the airplane's going to sit there all day waiting for you. It's probably going to drop you and your crew and uh, and go somewhere else and then come back and pick you up later. Uh, but it's been incredibly successful. And um, yeah, they have partnered with ATP, which are the uh, uh, is the pilot training program based down in Florida. And ATP has, I forgot how many locations. It's got to be 100, I bet. Uh, or pretty darn close to it, but uh, uh, in order to uh, train pilots uh, from zero time uh, through the airlines. And what they did is come up with a way uh, to partner with uh, Wheels Up that flight instructors that usually would stay with a, a flight school until they had 1,500 hours, which allows them to qualify for a, an airline transport certificate, uh, airline transport pilot certificate, They'll now be able to do it at a thousand hours and actually transition from flight instructing into the right seat of uh, one of Wheels Up's King Airs or Citations, which means they'll get some uh, turbine time. Uh, they'll get into the real world of flying long before they ever even hit a regional airline. So uh, it looks like uh, it's a pretty cool situation. I'm sure that ATP graduates are going to be. Uh, 
really excited about this. And of course, there, there's still a, a pilot shortage, which of course we're going to talk about a little later on here tonight anyway. So it sounds like it's a you know, a, a win-win situation, maybe a win-win-win situation for for Wheels Up, for ATP, and for the the pilots going through ATP flight school. Everybody makes out. Yeah, I was just wanted to add uh, two thoughts on that. Uh, they said that they'll interview people at 1,000 hours, so they won't actually start their conditional job offer until apparently at 1,200 hours. But I think the, the one downside of this is that it means that flight instructors won't be staying as long at uh, ATP in general, which means that on average they're going to have slightly you know, fewer, more experienced flight instructors. So you know, I think that's a challenge is if you're you – know, those, those high-time flight instructors that you know have, have the most – to offer. And if you're kind of skimming the cream off and sending them on hundreds of hours sooner, well, you've kind of lost that uh, opportunity to pass along what they know to your uh, trainees. Absolutely well said. Well, maybe their strategy is to increase the volume, right? I mean, if we do have a pilot shortage, ATP wants to, I would think, get more student pilots in the pipeline. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe this is is a way to kind of Retain the Possibly. balance. I don't know. Rob, I, I, I guess my other question is, does Wheels Up have enough volume to support an influx of more pilots? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. I bet uh, maybe there's someone else on the show tonight that might have uh, some insight uh, into that. Um, uh, maybe Hillel. Uh, at our airport, it is rare that there isn't at least one wheels up plane standing out in front of the FBO waiting to pick someone up or in the middle of dropping somebody off. So it's like a revolving door. There's there. It's, it's like I said, very rare. Uh, and I'm not at the airport all the time. So if you think that I'm there at random times and very seldom compared to say Max Trescott uh, and, and pretty much every time I'm there, if it's, you know, business hours, there's a wheels up plane coming, going, or sitting on the, in front of the FBO. So they're quite popular. Um, sometimes it's, it's more often than not, it's their King Airs, but for every now and again, it's a, it's a, uh, it's one of their citations. It's pretty efficient. You, you, they don't, they're not sitting around you know, chewing daylight uh, very often. They're usually, they're down, their, their passengers come or go and they're gone. By perhaps coincidence, uh, ATP just opened uh, a school at my airport. Uh, there had only been two flight schools for the longest time, and now there's four, maybe five flight schools in our airport. Um, and uh, ATP doesn't even have enough hangar space. They're parking planes out in the open uh, on the just in, on the ramp. But in answer to your question, David, th- there has been such a demand since early 2020 for uh, uplift that um, right now nobody can keep up with it. Uh, There has been a slight decrease recently in the number of uh, charter uh, flights that are going on. But uh, again, charter flights and these kinds of membership uh, flying groups are very different. And um, uh, But again, right now, the, the, the membership groups are just flying the pants off their airplanes. Well, in fact, there was an article in, I think, yesterday's Wall Street Journal, about the number of people flying private jets or private aircraft, let's call them, uh, is is not only is it the volume of people wanting those planes going up, but the type of person is not 
just the cream of the cream of the cream of the crop. It's much more ordinary people, too. And the way they described it, it's the passengers that are happy to get Burger King when they stop and not caviar. And that was a quote. So I didn't I'm not picking, you know promoting Burger King over any other restaurant, but that was that was their point. So that people who who are capable of affording that kind of flying and many more people are deciding that that's how they want to fly, given the so many stories and events that we've heard about in the, you know, flying in the airlines and airports and so on. And, and what's happened is the uh, passengers that like caviar have moved up and now they own their own jet so they don't have to belong to a membership and, and share their, their airplane with somebody else. Mm. Well, Rob, you mentioned, I think Rob mentioned the pilot shortage. And uh, what we see here is the Regional Airline Association and ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association, kind of have a little spat or a little difference of opinion going on with respect to the pilot shortage and if we are looking at one or not. Rob, I thought everybody was in agreement that we have a pilot shortage. Not uh, not the Airline Pilots Association, but in, in my vast experience, uh, every time the word pilot shortage has ever been mentioned, ALPA has said, no, 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 no. You guys don't really understand the, uh, the, the problem. And uh, so this was not new. Uh, however, uh, what I think this does is remind people of why taking a statistics course or two in college, if you decide to go, is, is worth it. Because simply saying uh, things are better uh, these days uh, or, or we're making more money than we were or uh, things cost less. Oh, really? Then what? What is your reference point? Uh, lies, and, damn lies and statistics. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, the Regional Airline Association, which represents the, uh, uh, the regional carriers that, are, that actually provide uh, the majority of the airline passenger capacity in the United States that are normally – uh, tied to American or Delta or United uh, or, uh, uh, you know, the, the, well, let's see. I don't know if they're tied to anybody else. I don't think Alaska. I think Alaska might be tied to Horizon. Um, but again, I don't believe Southwest is tied with any regional carrier. Uh, but again, in uh, in those situations, they they simply wanted people to know that the data that Alper provided was very interesting. However, they kind of kind of spoke out of both sides of their mouth and left out a few facts during their uh, uh, explanations that uh, the RAA said, hey, wait a minute. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. And it really came down to uh, the measuring the number of pilots that were uh, flying prior to the pandemic, uh, the number that have been flying since the pandemic began, and, and how those changes have really come about. And that, uh, yes, according to the RAA, there really is a pilot shortage. And it's not simply the airlines uh, playing games with people. Uh, although my own particular opinion is that this is not a black and white issue where it's absolutely the way the RAA explains it and absolutely not the way ALPA explains it. It's some of both uh, because the airlines really did get themselves into this whole 
uh, mess that that eventually ended up with a a pilot shortage. Uh, And of course, when you have a pandemic and people don't want to get together, there were fewer people attending flight schools. The price certainly has not stayed uh, level. It's very expensive to learn to fly, especially when you need to get to uh, 1,500 hours to uh, to qualify for a uh, uh, even a regional job. So again, anybody that can uh, listen to that last story about how ATP and uh, Wheels Up have partnered to say, well, maybe we can tweak the the requirements some to to make it just a little bit easier. Uh, I, I think is is really where it's going to go, and and that's that's going to be coming. Uh, Till who knows when, but there there are plenty of partnerships out there between the major airlines and uh, uh, and the regionals and anything they can get anything they can do to get bodies in the door uh, is is really going to help. And I just want to point out that Alpa is a union, and their primary responsibility is to protect their members and to help keep them, uh, you know, insulated from supply and demand, and to try and get them the the best possible salaries. Now, there are lots of other things that they do as well, uh, but I think the the analogy perhaps would be if you went to the American Medical Association and said, "Hey, do we need a whole bunch more medical schools?" and they would go, "Oh no, we've got enough medical schools because they want to uh, basically, uh, you know, protect the doctors who are already out there." there. Uh, I think uh, a similar analogy is that there was a survey done of flight schools and examiners just within the flight the last few months to see, hey, what's the perception of, is there a shortage of examiners? And the 80% of the flight schools said, yes, there's definitely a shortage. And 20% of the examiners said, there's definitely a shortage. So I think there's a you know a vested interest by ALPA and other organizations to try and protect their own members and constrain supply a little bit because that helps keep salaries up. I think uh, to me, this is a visual representation of data issue to a, to a large extent. And the RAA brings this up. Now, there's a book which I think Hillel is holding up, The Visual Display of Quantitative Information. Yeah, there's a couple of classic books on this subject, which I, I think are applicable in this case. And what the RAA is saying is that you can, well, it goes back to what David was saying before. Uh, about statistics, depending on how you visually portray data can have very different uh, or lead you to very different conclusions. And they're saying that's what the uh, ALPA has done in this case. Uh, just An easy example is if you plot a line, it looks like it's screaming upward, uh, which maybe that's the point that the author you know, is trying to make. You have to look at the scale. Because, you know, the scale may be the top 10% of the entire data series. And if you plot the entire data series, you say, well, it's not screaming up, it's slowly creeping up. But you can make it look uh, screaming, depending on your, uh, your choice of the, uh, of the axes. And that's what the RAA is saying that ALPA has done here. But a really easy way to do this, to see this for yourself, is find a site or an app or something that displays uh, the um, the stock market and one that allows you to look at it by day, week, month, year, five years, ten, you know, whatever. And look at it for a week. And I did this a few days ago. And if you look at it for the last week, it's like, wow, yeah, stocks are going up. The market's going up. Looks great. If you zoom back out to 
a month or a couple of months, you see that, well, actually, it, it used to be higher, and then it dipped down, and, and we're just working back towards that previous peak. It gives you a completely different perspective. And then zoom out for five or 10 years, and what you'll see on the stock market is that there was kind of a bubble, but if you look at it long term, we're actually kind of back on track to the rate that we had been growing for the last 10 years. You know, it gives you a completely different view. So that's what's sort of the core of the RAA's complaint with what Alpa has done here. So, I mean, you can you can look at the charts and decide for yourself, and we'll have uh, the original Alpa statement uh, document in here as well as the RAA's response to it. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's two different groups looking at the same numbers differently with different viewpoints and different, uh, you know, different agendas in mind. Isn't that what I said? Yeah, I, but you have to <laughs> No, thank you for clarifying that, because I have to be honest, when I went through statistics in graduate school, if it hadn't been for my wife, who, as many of you know, is a is a, a shrink who had been through many years of statistics, I don't know that I would have gotten through it in one piece because it completely confused me. But the beauty of, of a statistics class is that when you have a great instructor who explains uh, it's not just the numbers, it's how they are presented and the fact that they can tell two entirely different stories with the same numbers. And I, even at my ripe old age, said, whoa, that is pretty cool. And and most people don't understand that, but I'm glad I took it. Yeah, yeah, agreed completely. And if you really want to dig into it, you know, do a web search for visual representation of data and you'll see some some interesting things. And if you just want to do it quick and dirty and illustrate it to yourself, do my little stock market trick and just, you know, start start in close, short, uh, short time horizon and zoom out um, in steps. And you'll see that it portrays uh, different, a different picture depending on how zoomed out you are. All right, that's probably enough of that. So, so I guess the bottom line is we don't know if there's a pilot shortage or not. It depends on the data you look at and how you look at it. I kind of think there is, though. All right. Back to a military story, the B-52. So the B-52s that are out there now that we love so much are the B-52Hs. But they're getting ready to undergo some significant changes. So we may be in line for a new uh, a new letter variant. Yeah, it, this is kind of good news. Um it means that we're finally getting to the point where we're possibly re-engineing B-52s. The last major variant change was from the B-52G to the, the B-52H. The B-52H had turbofans instead of turbojets. We're now putting the Rolls-Royce engines on. But there's two major upgrades going to B-52s. Um, the first one is it's going to be re-engined to roll, the Rolls-Royce engines. The second is they're going to get new radars. And it looks like the radars will be a higher priority, um, be integrated into the existing airframes as they are. So you're getting new radars, you're losing your crew position. So that will probably make them a B-52J. 
And then eventually when the engines get backed, as well as the radar and the engines, it'll probably be a B-52K. Now, there these aren't new builds. These are like a lot of other aircraft, like the C-5Ms, which were re-engined. They were C-5A, C-5Bs, and then C-5Ms, the M being modernized. But the airframe was structural, is same. So these are going to be the same B-52s that great-grandparents were flying, um, but they will have different engines and different radars. The radar um, is going to be from the F-18 program, the F-18 ENFs. They will point it downwards instead of upwards because the B-52, and they're going to get some additional pylons, but you'll be able to see it's a B-52. You know, the engines may look a little different, but the uh, Rolls-Royce engines that are going in will be going in basically the same pylons that are on there now. So you'll have eight of them. Originally, a long time, they were talking about large turbofans, but that seems to have gone out of the out, out the window. So basically, they're taking the smaller engines and putting them in the same containers that are on the wing so they don't have to. But it's going to be uh, basically a whole new bomber, uh, you know, and... It's kind of impressive, you know, back in the day when Boeing knew what the hell they were doing. So so we have the B-52Hs now. Can I assume that there's never an I model, that they don't use eyes? That's – the logic being is – It looks like a one. Never, there's – usually there are never as suffixes O's or I's. Good. Now – the whole lettering and numbering system that the Pentagon uses has gone out the window. They do whatever they want because we do have F-16Is, you know, which are Israelis. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but the, the original logic was you were never supposed to use an I, you were never supposed to use an O. Now, you, you can use an O as a prefix, so like an OA-10, which was O for observation. But... Um, They've used eyes, you know, and you, you weren't supposed to use a V because that might be possibly considered a five. But, um, yeah, the whole numbering system and lettering system is sort of haphazard anymore. So, but the next appropriate letter would be J. K would be another one. Ironically, though, originally K was always a allocated for UK aircraft. The C-130K was for UK, unless it was a prefix, and then it was for kerosene, otherwise known as a tanker. It all goes out the window, but what will be really interesting is when these are re-engined, if Boeing doesn't start calling it a B-52J Super Fortress 2, that'll be the real interesting designator. If, if they go and add... Super add the two suffix to 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 the name, which would be which would be kind of cool. Uh, I think the Air Force should, should go ahead and do do that because basically, this is going to be other than the airframe, basically a completely rebuild the aircraft. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we we get a B fifty two J Super Fortress two hmm. or a B fifty two J plus. Oh, uh, yeah. Don't plus and plus pluses. And yeah, that's a yeah, Navy and I Marine mean, thing. 
Navy and Marines don't they do the pluses. Now they what the prime example of that was the AV8B plus or the AV8B plus two um, because they were trying to skate Congress from realizing that it was really basically a whole new airframe. Um, so we, we, we've always played around games like that, but so the designation system is not necessarily foolproof. Hmm. Another air force item, apparently the air force is pretty interested in EV tall aircraft electric vertical takeoff and land aircraft. And so the the U.S. Air Force has awarded a contract to Aptima, and uh, the idea is for them to identify, I guess, uh, pilot competency requirements for eVTOL operations. So, I mean, the implication here is that the Air Force is, uh, you know, looking towards a future where there are eVTOLs, and and uh, and they have pilots, and they need to learn. Okay, so what do eVTOL pilots need to know, and and how do you structure training around that? Well, the Jetsons coming, so they're going to need to be able to fly it. I think the Air Force is looking to see how good they are at playing Super Mario Brothers um, <laughs> as a qualifier for whether they can fly these eVTOLs. I mean, that's that's pretty much what the eVTOL sales pitch is all about. Like we talked about with the Jetson aircraft earlier trying to create aircraft that do not require the skills or the training of a, of a certificated pilot. Um, and if, you know, just like we saw with how the air force was, um, had, you know, had a, uh, a different track for people that were going to come up through the ranks flying, uh, UAVs, um, not completely, you know, that not without, not the ones that have are completely autonomous, obviously the ones that are flown from a, a trailer in Nevada, but they're those. They don't go through the same pilot training. In the beginning, they all were pilots, and they were taken kicking and screaming from the front lines. But today, they're growing people that never actually leave the earth as pilots. And I think the next step beyond that is to get people that aren't even certificated pilots to be able to operate eVTOLs. And you know, and eventually, I mean, are we going to actually make? You know, if we get to the point where infantry or other uh, individuals have the ability to fly through the air some distance. We're not going to make all of those people pilots. And the technology that can do that is going to be the same technology that can power, you know, that can fly an eVTOL from place to place without the person in the vehicle having to actually be a pilot. And so Aptima is planning on using simulators, actually, of, of different eVTOL prototypes, because as we know, and as we've talked about there, a lot of these are prototypes or just designs on paper even. So they're going to use simulators of various prototypes that provide different levels of automation. And then Aptima will determine the, you know, the, the training needs for eVTOL pilots. There's an interesting quote or two from uh, Samantha Emerson. She's the Aptima training scientist. And she said the learnability study will help us not only understand the baseline pilot skills and competencies needed for proficient eVTOL flight, but also the impact of automation on pilot performance. And she goes on, in platforms with more automation and augmentation, it may require unlearning and retraining of behaviors to prevent interference or conflict with automated operations. 
It sounds like the old cartoon about the automated cockpit of the future. Yep, Hillel's nodding his head as well, so he, he knows what it is. That's where they have uh, one pilot in the cockpit with a dog, and the uh, the dog's job basically is to bite the pilot if he touches anything in the cockpit. And coming up in, in just a few minutes, uh, we have Hillel's interview that, that deals directly with that with that topic. First, let's have a little what's up with the geeks. Uh, Rob, what have you uh, what have you found here? You found something interesting. Well, it, it's hard not to find something interesting when uh, uh, Scott Spangler, uh, the editor over at Jetwine, is is typing away. He he comes up with some pretty interesting topics, and uh, he came up with one this last week about a uh, a movie star and a movie. That goes back, all right, a couple of years, mm-hmm. back to actually 1927. Uh, and uh, it was uh, uh, about uh, the, uh, if, if any of you saw the, uh, the movie The Aviator with uh, DiCaprio, uh, he was playing Howard Hughes. There was a, a movie he was trying to, um, to uh, film, uh, a silent movie about aerial warfare because he thought it was so interesting. And uh, and lo and behold, this is the movie that it was based on, which was called Wings of All Things. And it involved a couple of uh, stars of the 20s and 30s, uh, a fellow named uh, Buddy Rogers, an actress named Clara Bow, and uh, an unknown actor who... For some of you people, maybe your mom and dad knew him, named Gary Cooper. Well, what did that have to do with all of this? Uh, well, Gary Cooper, of course, was famous for a number of movies later in his life in the 30s and 40s and 50s. High Noon, Sergeant York, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Parade of the, uh, I'm sorry, Pride of the Yankees, which was an old Babe Ruth movie. But uh, what was really interesting is that uh, this was a silent movie. It was one of the last big silent movies, and it won uh, an Oscar for the best picture at the uh, inaugural awards of, I'm sorry, the inaugural Academy Awards back in 1922. Um, How about that? I can't even read my own writing. 1929, and it cost an astounding $2 million dollars to make, which sounds like nothing now. But of course, that was like 30 or 35 million now. But what's so important is that Scott found a, um, uh, a, a re- it's a restoration of the actual 144 minute film in black and white. Um, again, it was silent, but they uh, of course had a, a musical track to go along with it. And, uh, and this is where uh, the world was introduced to this uh, movie star that I mentioned before, Gary Cooper. Uh, he was introduced and he had 90 seconds on screen during one of the flying sequences. Uh, and of course, he was killed in the initial uh, flying sequence. I, I mean, in the movie, he didn't really die, obviously. But it is a, uh, I have not seen the uh, entire flick. It's available online uh scott knows where it is if you go to jetwine.com this week you'll see that story uh but it is uh, 
uh, I'm told from a couple of people, an absolutely brilliant uh, uh, restoration of the movie, but also a, an incredibly realistic uh, representation of what uh, aerial warfare was like uh, back in the 1920s. Uh, actually, it's supposed to... I was just going to say, except that it was uh, supposed to happen during World War One. And uh, but what I thought was kind of cool. Thank you for that, David. Um, you guys are good for keeping help helping keep me on on target with the facts. Um, but uh, more than three hundred pilots uh, were part of this aerial warfare flick. Uh, they filmed it down in Texas at what is now uh, Joint Base San Antonio, and uh, it, it's just an amazing story and an amazing flick. And so uh, I've already got a copy on order. I haven't received it yet, but it's coming as a DVD, which I can only play on my laptop, but I can connect my laptop up to my big screen. So I'm hoping that it's uh, it's going to be really good. But the, the again, the story sounds uh, absolutely uh, unbelievable. And keep in mind that most people, what most people don't realize was there was no fictional anything you know you you there was no cgi the airplanes that crash in this movie were crashed by pilots (laughs) the realism of it is i mean i recommend watching this and then watching definitely watch the aviator if you've never watched the aviator it's a really good movie it's a really good movie about howard hughes um but yeah i mean this is the kind of he wanted absolute realism to show what it was like, what combat was like in World in World War One, air to air combat. So they used actual German aircraft, actual American aircraft, and the crashes are real. The pilots were, you know, World War One pilots who were pretty much unemployed, so they it was in the middle of the depression. So all of that, and and of course. If you're going to watch all the Academy Award movies, I don't know of any other Aviation Academy Award winner. Hmm. You know, that's a very interesting point. Uh, Despite what we all thought of Maverick, uh, I'm sorry. uh, uh, Top Gun. uh, Thank you. (laughs) My words, I'm sorry. My brain is really not that bad. I've just been, you know, recovering from, did I have brain surgery? I can't quite remember. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, uh, Top Gun and, and Top Gun 2, which a lot of people call it, which was uh, Maverick, uh, it wasn't like that. And in, in fact, David, in the early days of World War One, uh, were not uh, their pilots that were shooting at each other with, with rifles and pistols and things like that? Well, originally aircraft in World War One were observation aircraft. They were flying over the front lines to see the trench warfare that right and then eventually it's an interesting progression because suddenly the and it was a very kind of for the pilots it was kind of a friendly sort of thing where you know you'd wave to the other guy and everything and then somebody brought a pistol aboard and next thing you know someone's taking a pistol and shooting at the other airplane and of course, if you shoot, bring a pistol, somebody else brings a rifle. And then next thing you know, airplanes are getting guns, you know, and they're, they're becoming observation aircraft. And then they're becoming airplanes whose job is to shoot down the observation aircraft. 
which happened very quickly. But yeah, I mean, and Wings is a really good representation of aerial combat in World War One. Second only to second only to Snoopy versus the Red Baron. That's <laughs> the the number one choice. But if you're gonna if you're gonna watch a movie, definitely Wings. And we'll have the the Wings item in Jetwine, the link to that in the show notes, of course. Do, does anybody remember back in the seventies and eighties or somewhere in there when uh, Snoopy versus the Red Baron was was a hit on the radio? Mm-hmm. I can't remember oh, yeah. who actually was involved in that, but I... That would be the Royal Guardsmen. That oh, was the group wow. that did that. Yes, goes wow, back to my yeah. DJ days. <laughs> I worked as a DJ for about five years. The Royal Guardsmen. Oh, I like that. And they had two different uh, records out, Snoopy's Christmas and the original one, which I forget. All right. Well, someone will remember for sure. Any other what's up with the geeks items from anybody? Well, I threw one in there that, I don't know, as long as we're chatting. Uh, if you've been to St. Martin uh, down in the Caribbean, you, you have probably been on the uh, beach that approaches, um, uh, it, that's at the end of the runway uh, approaching uh, St. Martin from the southwest. And uh, you, you can just about touch the uh, the airplanes as they land, or, or so it seems. Uh, but somebody shot a a video of uh, of an A321 landing in uh, Skiathos in, in Greece, uh, off the east coast of Greece. And this airplane, um, y- you watched it coming inbound, and a- as any pilot would, you went, eh, this guy's a little low because he was really close to the water. And, and you actually had people on the, uh, on the shoreline running and ducking for cover as this airplane went over over the top so uh, uh we put a copy i'm sorry we put a link to the uh to the video in the show notes and it's it's worth watching because i think an awful lot of people thought they were going to be part of an accident yes it's it was interesting to watch the crowd because this plane it seems like it flies 10 feet over their heads I mean, maybe it was a little bit more than that but it really seemed like it was 10 feet it was 11 feet. 11 feet. Yeah. And, and there's a bunch of plane spotters there. Uh, some of them, I think, maybe just casual because it's a place where you can participate in this thing. And I think some others very serious with tripods and cameras and all. And to watch the crowd reaction, uh, some uh, as the plane's approaching, some of them start slowly and then with increasingly increasing speed walking, you know, getting back from it because this looks like it's coming in close. Some of the others uh, uh, don't move and get their, you know, their hats blown into the ocean or, or, uh, or, or whatever. It's uh, quite, quite spectacular. I think it, for all of them who were there, it's one of those uh, events in their life that they'll always remember and tell stories about. It was close, very close. It was a Wizz Air flight, the A three twenty one Neo. And we still don't have any confirmation of whether or not our friend from several other different podcasts, uh, Captain Al, was at the controls. He still is not confirmed nor denied. <laughs> Very good. All right. We have uh, another interview from Hillel here, who, of course, was at Oshkosh, is our aviation entrepreneurship and innovation correspondent. And this is a, a very interesting interview, Hillel. you want to set this up? Sure. So... There's no shortage of new ideas and uh, announcements at Oshkosh that's deliberate. People wait for Oshkosh and plan 
releases of products and ideas. Some are much more further along than others. Some are like they announce they bring up an actual flying aircraft and this is going to be certificated or it just got certificated. So Oshkosh is is well known as a uh, haven, if you will, of new ideas. And I don't go to too many of them because as Max Trescott said earlier in this episode, he said how most of it's vaporware. And that's, um, that's you know, that's the, that's the case with a lot of startup products and services. And this product was caught my attention because of, well, to be honest, it's because of the name, but I got to look into it a little bit further. And the idea behind it is to have an, uh, what I called, and you'll hear me talk, mention this and you'll hear the CEO deny it, but I called it sort of having like Alexa in the cockpit with you. Lots of differences between Alexa and what this product does. But after listening to what it was and what it's not, it turned me into a fan. And when I described it to other people at Oshkosh, because there's no shortage of pilots to talk to, they were also equally interested, intrigued, if nothing else. And so you'll hear in the interview what it is, and you'll also hear its excellent name. Think of the the ultimate in having co-pilots. And what would you call it? And uh, if, if I asked a bunch of people now, much more than there used to be, what would you call your co-pilot? They'd all come up with the same answer, and that's what they named it. And you'll hear us talk about that. I don't want to give it away. So I guess we can just roll tape. Yep. This is Hillel Glazer, innovation and entrepreneurship correspondent for the Airplane Geeks podcast, coming to you from Oshkosh Air Venture 2020 with another installment of what I like to call Beyond the Press Release. I'm here with and have the pleasure of speaking with Mirko Hahn, CEO of Aerosys, a relatively young and rapidly growing company from Germany. Aerosys is developing Goose. I must say that's a delightful name. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Talk to me, Goose. Uh, it's eventually a certified digital co-pilot for commercial and general aviation. Goose is an AI-based offline-capable voice assistant. Mirko, welcome to Oshkosh, and thank you for speaking with me on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me. You're, you're very welcome, and I'm, I must say I'm flattered by the intro. <laughs> so, great. So some of us and our listeners can maybe guess what you're aiming for here with Goose. To me, it sounds like it's either an app or something integrated into the panel, and it's probably going to tell me things I might want to know while I'm flying, but that's just me guessing. To me, it sounds like it's Alexa for the cockpit, but it actually knows something, and it actually knows something in particular about how to fly along with me. <laughs> okay, there was there was quite a lot of information, and you're right on some parts, you're wrong on others. Um, so first, uh, let me start at um, let me wrap it up from the back. So like Alexa for the cockpit, um, that is that is correct in terms of we are doing a voice assistant, and and you can talk to Goose, right? Um, however, you just said it. I don't really like the comparison because with the voice assistant we have on our phones or back home, we always depend on an internet connection. And um, so we can't, at, at the current time, we can't maintain an internet connection at all the time. We can't be sure that we have at flight level 400 over the Atlantic, we have 5G internet. So our voice assistant, how we know it from, from our current devices wouldn't work. So everything we do with Goose is completely offline capable and um, it works wherever you are in the middle of the desert. Um, at flight level 400, um, it, it always works. And um, 
then just uh, circling back a little bit from there, it is it is neither an app um, nor it is it is completely integrated. We have it as a portable system because we believe to to really be really be a co-pilot. Um, you would you would want to go places with a co-pilot. You would want to fly different airplanes with a co-pilot, and um, so that's why we designed the system to be portable. So you take it to whatever you have in your hangar. You take it to your friends. You take it to the flight or to the aircrafts your friends fly with, and um, you take it to to the helicopter. So it is it is at the current stage neither integrated nor does it run on an app. It is um, it is an edge device that is completely portable. Neat. So, um, where does it get its knowledge, and how does it? Let, let's start. Let's back up a second. And so, I have the device in the cockpit. I'm assuming it's integrated into my communications panel, so I can hear it and it can hear me. Exactly. Um, but what am I asking it, or what is it telling me? And does it? You know, is it is it proactive? Is it reactive? What is it? You know, so um, I can I know what I can get from a co-pilot, a real co-pilot. But what can I get from Goose? Um, so Goose is both. It is. Uh, reactive and active and um, it, it kind of plugs in line with your headset so you loop all the audio through through goose and um, then like you would expect it from a human co-pilot um, you can ask for things you if you need an information if you need a checklist the frequency or the closest airfield you you just ask goose you say goose give frequency for kilo oscar sierra hotel and goose will give you the the frequency the tower frequency of whitman airfield um, but that is the reactive part, and I think where really the magic comes in is with the with the active part, where Goose actively approaches you as a pilot when it senses that something might not be aligned with um, with maintaining a safe flight, as in an airspace violation, or you're about to exceed your your flight values, overshoot or undershoot, or you might deviate from your planned track and you haven't noticed, and um, so all that sort of things um, is where where Goose comes into play and then at the current stage we're developing a much deeper level to it where we not only check is it right or wrong but we also listen to the pilot and we are detecting emotional undertones in the voice and in the interaction pattern of the pilot and um, that is a fascinating topic and um, we're using very very deep AI and have um, scientists involved in it we have psychologists involved in that and um, we can um, measure the emotional undertones and if they overshoot or undershoot certain areas we can detect uh, stress, uh, fatigue as well as hypoxia very very reliable and um, then Goose, uh, like you would expect from a human co-pilot, Goose will, will help you to land safe and sound at the nearest airfield and um, get some rest um, and, and get back on your feet to, to maintain a safe life. So, uh, not at the risk of putting you on the spot, um, I routinely fly through complex, complex airspace. Yeah. And um, my GPS system, GNSS, is constantly sending me messages. Uh, you're 10 miles from this, you're two minutes from that. Whether I'm on an IFR flight plan or a VFR flight plan, it's telling me about these airspaces that I'm cleared to go through. I don't need to be warned about them. Is there a way to like turn off and just say, you know, goose, shut up? You know, it's like stop. I don't need to know about airspace anymore or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's that is kind of the the whole idea. I mean, we want to have a we have a system that really should bond with the pilot, and they, the pilot and the co-pilot should form a union, and uh, so they they should team up. And then obviously you can configure all the features, have them on and off, but this. Um, 
this airplay or this airspace problem that you just mentioned, um, I think you wouldn't you, you wouldn't even encounter it when you're cleared for it. Goose understands that there is an airspace ahead, and he understands. Okay, he's been cleared for it. He's good to go. So I'm just gonna shut up. I, I don't need to warn him because he knows what he's doing. He's cleared for the airspace, or you might have two-way communication established with the ATC, and um, Goose recognizes it, and then you don't get a warning for a class D airspace. And so, oh, so interesting. So, because it's connected to my mic, and the mic is always hot. Yeah. Um, and whether I'm transmitting to air ATC or not, it's just like talking to anyone else in the cockpit or in the plane that they've got headsets and microphones, and that they're always hot unless you turn them off. Exactly. Um, so when when air tra ATC, air traffic control, says cleared through the Bravo or cleared to the such and such airport, uh, Goose heard that. Exactly. Goose and, heard that. Goose understood that, and he's like, "All right." Too easy. Okay, good. So that that sounds pretty incredible uh, for a, people that aren't pilots. So for me, I can t somewhat see what I could use Goose with and Goose yeah. do it for. But let's take it from your perspective. Uh, you came up with the idea. You came up with the product to solve something that may not be immediately obvious that needs solving. So it's an, an innovative product in that regard. So yep. walk us through that that process that said, you know, we need to build this. There was actually never really a moment where I was like, oh. I need to build this and then I'm going to make a startup out of it. That kind of just so happened. Um, so when I flew to the US um, to get my American pilot certificate, so I'm, I'm a pilot in, in Europe and I wanted to get an FAA license. And um, so I flew over, I was flying in, in California, a little bit north of, of Los Angeles. And um, there we've got a quite complex uh, airplane, uh, airspace structure. We've got the different airspaces of LAX in the south and then we've got Camarillo, Oxnard in the west and, um, and I think there's even Santa Clarita on the right and, and in the east and um, so I was flying there with a, I think it was a 120, a Chestnut 120, it didn't have anything in it. I mean even uh, just the just the basic intercom was in there and um, I didn't have a moving map, I didn't have any reference, like a digital reference on the airspaces and so I figured um, I'm, the geek in me just um, just tried to solve it with um, with technology, and so I just had a little device that beeped when I was about to to enter an airspace, and um, then the second like the second stage of it was that I could uh, use a beeping better uh, pattern on whether I have to turn left or right in order hmm. to get back in to our plan to fly. So you just you know built that in a weekend or something? Yeah, well, I was I was in the I was in the states for about three weeks, and I. I actually slept on an amateurs and a friend's hangar, and uh, yeah, and then some guys came over and uh, some flight instructors, and uh, they just saw me in there uh, with a soldering iron in their aircraft, and they were like, I, I think they were like, oh, what, what's a weird German doing with soldering iron? He's not even certified for an FAA license. <laughs> like, yeah. So they come over, so what you're doing with the soldering iron in our aircraft? It's like, hey, it's, it's cool. I'm, I'm working on this, this system here. Um, I have this idea that keeps me safe in the air, and they're like, "Okay, can we can we see it?" And then we went for a flight, and um, and then I think it was even in the I think two of the three guys flew with me, and then one of them was like, "Is that your startup?" I was <laughs> like, "You know what? No, it is. <laughs> Good for you. That's awesome. That's yeah, great. That's, and so, that is kind of how it how it all developed. So so that's you uh, as a pilot and trying to you know get some level of spatial awareness yeah um, exactly situational awareness uh, what do you see as the typical user profile for your for the end product 
Oh, that is a well, very... That's maybe the initial product. Oh, okay. I was going to say that is a very tricky question. Yeah, the um, initial product. So the initial pro- uh, product is... Um, probably going to be um, a pilot who is very aware of um, of the complexity of, uh, of maneuvering an aircraft and who is very aware of safety concepts and um, who really wants to adapt to new technology in order to get kind of the spirit of aviation back to really just focus on flying and don't have to deal with all the technology and all its touch screens and buttons. And um, so I think the first one will probably be someone who takes um, who takes the family with them and go for a weekend trip and just want to fly as safe as possible and um, as relaxed as possible and um, yes, yeah, just kind of aware of um, of how complex complex the aircraft can be. Walk me through a little bit of how do I how do I tell Goose I'm flying a Cherokee and then you know next time I'm flying a Cessna 172. How does it know that I'm in a different plane? How easily is it going to be to uh, move from plane to plane? You mentioned portable, but you also mentioned it has to be connected to, I guess, all of the material uh, information that's coming out of the, the system. So, so how does it know the, uh, what what this particular aircraft's uh, needs are, our checklists are, capabilities are? So what we have is um, we developed an application for your smartphone or for your tablet, and um, you can configure it. You can configure Goose with it. And so in in this app, you have your, we called it your hangar, and you parked all the aircrafts you want to fly in there. And you can just download them from our database, and they have um, the basic procedures, all the basic checklists, um, all the performance charts, they have it built in there. And so you, you park the aircraft in your hangar, and then you can configure it, Maybe you have some retrofits that we don't know about, and then you can just adapt the checklist, um, delete some, add some things, add checklists, add new procedures to it, and then you just sync it with Goose. And you select your four or five aircraft you want to have a Goose ready to go. You just hit sync, it syncs wirelessly, um, and you're good to go. Back at home, Goose connects. You just put it to charge, Goose connects to your Wi-Fi at home downloads all the new databases for navigation, gets the latest updates on frequencies and airspaces, so all that sort of thing is just done behind the curtains. And um, so as soon as you just unplug it, it's ready to go, it has the latest information on it, and um, you can you can be up in the air as safe as possible. Does that mean that each aircraft has to have the docking station connected to its navigation system? Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, so you can you can use it without the docking station. It connects wirelessly to an ADSB unit. Um, so you've got your weather information, your traffic information um, from the ADSB. A lot of ADSBs out there also have a GPS on there. So you have your, your position as well. And um, we also have a little flight tracking unit in case you don't have an ADSB in there yet. And so it just comes with Goose, and um, but also again that is that is optional. Um, but the the actual core unit is um, is just on the portable device, and once you have the docking station, you can access every digital information the aircraft has. You can ask for your cylinder head temperature of a certain cylinder, and um, Goose will give you warnings when all pressure, the ampere meter, the voltage, something is just out of the ordinary, and, and will point you to it. So um, you could probably guess if I'm starting down certain uh, rabbit holes, as we say. Yeah. Like, is it self-powered? Does it have a rechargeable battery? Does it need ship's power? How does it stay alive? Um, so it has different options. So it obviously has it has built-in battery, which provides enough power for a four-hour flight using all the capacity it has. 
um, including like a little safety safety aspect. But uh, then again, you can just connect it to the power you have in the aircraft. Whether you can use a limo and use the power from the limo, or you can plug it to USB socket and you're good to go for for cross Atlantic. Yeah, very cool. As a startup. I often like to ask companies if I if you could wave a magic wand and get something right now, what would that be? <laughs> so so one thing, like I always thought, if some someday a fairy comes to me and says I grant you one wish, I would wish for more wishes. <laughs> But I assume if that's not possible here, I think what I what I would want is. Is a is a black credit card for for the business. <laughs> so some investor just jumping in saying, "I love the idea. Um, you guys proven that you can do it. You've got the product ready to go. You've proven there is a market. So here is the money. Scale the vision, and off you go." So that would be my my number one my number one wish. Yeah. Um, so kind of in. Yeah, this, is that this what stands on. between you and going to market, or are there a few other things that you need before you really can go to market? Uh, there are a few more things. Um, obviously, money always is a limiting factor, but um, yeah. So we are here in Oshkosh, and we are now now getting out there with a, in a very early stage because we really want to get pilots involved and get the GA industry involved, and that's why we specifically designed a beta program with um, 222 slots for for pilots to jump in to try goose to really stress test it to fly it all over the world um, in different weather scenarios and giving us feedback to really to fine-tune the the first version of it Pete, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that product introduction horizon looks like when are you actually looking to introduce the product oh yeah absolutely um, so we are taking pre-orders now then the beta starts in November this year 2022 um, the beta It's about to is about laid out for about four months, and um, after that we are uh, planning to have the first version ready to go anytime between Sun and Fun and Oshkosh next year. That sounds pretty ambitious. I would hope it does. It sounds doable, but ambitious. You know, to go right from beta to release in two months. Oh yeah, that is that is correct. I mean, the to be fair, the step from beta to release is. Um, Kind of just from the software perspective, we've got a hardware release already, so we know what we have in there. We've tested it. We're working together with the German Aerospace Center. We can use their their infrastructure for really sophisticated testing, and um, so the hardware is, is is already set. So everything that comes is um, software updates and really yeah boosting the performance in it. And, um, do, do you have boxes full of bo units ready to go for with the software, or do you have to still manufacture them? Uh, we we still have. To manufacture them, we are in the manufacturing process of the beta version now, and um, as soon as the beta starts, then we're going to switch over to um, to the first version. Yeah, we were uh, speaking with many technology companies here at Oshkosh, and the universal con conversation is around supply chain issues, right? Yeah. And there's even supply chain issues around Raspberry Pis and Arduino's and things like that. So, you know, if, if you're built on any of that technology, there's just as much a challenge with, with getting that equipment as well. Are you are you doing something different or are you worried about that? Well, that's obviously is a factor. I mean, you, supply chain is uh, is fairly important to us. I'm, I might be wrong. Actually, I hope I hope that I'm going to be wrong. But I think that we are looking in a in a smaller volume of the hundreds, maybe even maybe the smaller four-digit units that we're going to sell um, in the next or within the next year. So I think we should be fine. We're already picked out a few manufacturers and suppliers, and um, yeah. 
they're kind of pretty optimistic and um, so we think that we should be good but right. then obviously I guess if worst comes to worst you can always buy a bunch of 3D printers and do them in the basement right? absolutely absolutely <laughs> that's correct that is great, yeah. yeah it seems the way to go a lot of people are doing these rapid prototyping and go to these rapid you know build centers and stuff like that because you can just do it yourself but yeah scale so is there anything uh, that you'd like us to know and to talk to our listeners about uh, that we haven't yet covered um, that is a good question. I think I uh, just would like to take the opportunity again to really get the word out there of, of Goose and um, of uh, really like to hear feedback on of the GA industry and of, of all the listeners on the, what they think of Goose, what um, what kind of features they would like to have as well. And um, yeah, so that that would be very important for us. Feedback, discussion, beta users, absolutely, and um, and and the such. Obviously, conversations around. Uh, investors, so how can they get in touch with you? What's the best way through your website? Yeah, I think so. So they can use um, any channel they like. Uh, they can follow us on Instagram and reach out to us over there. But then we've got a proper contact form on the website, um, encrypted and everything. So all the information you send over is, is uh, protected. So um, that's yep. Aerosys is A E R O S Y S. Exactly. And then dot .io for input output. That's right. what you want to do with, with the digital copy. Sure, it's the right it's the right uh, top level domain for exactly. That kind of thing. So, um, how many folks in uh, your company are into aviation like you are? So, I think, I, I hope I'm not going to offend anyone of the team, but I think no one is as as much into aviation as I am. <laughs> sure. So, no one's taking soldering irons to unfamiliar airplanes and uh, trying to no. tweak them. Well, no, one, no one would do, like, for fun. <laughs> they, they do it now for work. <laughs> Um, no, we, we've got we've got quite a few that are um, that are pilots or in flight school, and a lot of guys got into into the aviation industry with us, and um, we picked them for for their very very deep knowledge in in ML and AI, for example. Or uh, we've got two psychologists involved, and um, they did a lot of behavioral research, um, and not too much in the aviation industry, and they yeah just find out how. Yeah, how big the aviation industry is and how much to do and um, we've got I think at least four or five employees just already signed up for flight school because uh, because of what we are doing that's a yeah you always know that's a good sign when it is. people are like, enthusiastic enough to go through that that's yeah, great that's absolutely. excellent well I'd like to thank you again Mirko for taking the time to speak with us That and for anybody again who wants to look into the product or become a beta user or at least apply to become one uh, don't forget to go to A-E-R-O-S-Y-S that's aerosys.io and once again thanks for speaking with us at Oshkosh for the uh, Airplane Geeks podcast you're um, very very welcome thanks for having me it's um, yeah, an extraordinary opportunity thanks well, our, our pleasure and have a great show and good luck we hope you get oh, all your beta testers you need I think thanks Clips for me was when we were going through examples, not all of which uh, got into the interview, where I'm a single pilot, so to speak, and uh, the person with me is not in any way, shape, or form a pilot, or I'm just completely alone. And and I go, I remember as I'm flying along, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm at this altitude, and I don't have an autopilot, so I need to be at pattern altitude by the time I get to the airport. And I'm doing the math in my head to figure out what's my descent rate based on how far I am. And I know there are a lot of these, you know, shortcuts and tricks that people remember and memorize. And 
being an engineer, I'm not into those mathematical shortcuts and tricks. I have to do the math from scratch in my head. It just doesn't, that's the only way it works for me. So I'm, I'm working through all these, you know, calculations. And when I could just turn around and say, Hey goose, what does my descent rate have to be to go from this altitude to pattern altitude at uh, Xenia airport in Ohio when I get there? And I could ask that of this device supposedly, and and it will tell me. And it will also be able to listen to whatever's going on in between me and air traffic control. And it, if they say, um, you know, where is the, they give me a, a fix. And every now and again, they'll give me a fix that I'm not familiar with. Even in my own airspace, there's a fix that's on every single uh, approach plate on arrival into our area that is a VOR. But they've decommissioned the VOR, so they use the fix that's on top of the VOR instead of the VOR's name. But everything is still based on the VOR. And I never heard of this fix because I've always used the VOR's name. And for I could say, okay, you know, Goose, where is the Capco fix? Where is that? Where is Capco? And you know, show it to me on the map. And that would be super useful. And things of that nature, just like, you know, yeah, I could certainly push a bunch of buttons and find the frequency for something, but isn't it so much easier when I don't have to look away from this, you know, what my instruments on an instrument day and, you know, f- to find the frequency of something I'm trying to figure out when I can just ask somebody for it. And when that somebody isn't sitting there, it's having a machine that can do it for me would be, I think, a huge benefit for me in the cockpit. So I was, I'm looking forward to seeing this come out because I'm kind of sold on the idea. So when I think of a digital co-pilot, something that's AI-based like this, uh, I, I can envision a couple of different uh, types of applications. One would be to augment a single pilot in an airplane. And just you know broadly, the other might be to eliminate the need for a second physical pilot in an airplane, uh, replacing the actual co-pilot with a the digital co-pilot, but it sounds like uh, Aerosys is more focused on the on the first of those, the augmenting a single pilot in an aircraft. Is that uh, is that how you see this? That is definitely their initial market. They do have plans for getting into the the certificated um, air transport categories. Uh, there are plenty of charters that fly small enough aircraft to where it's not a requirement that there be a second pilot in the cockpit. And the so that's their, you know, once they get this that's also part of GA, general you know, general aviation, but it's the on the commercial side. So there in addition to people like me that fly around with the family or friends or whatnot, um, they're looking to then move up to the uh, professional pilot who is allowed to fly single pilot operations but needs professionally, and so the person next to them might just be a customer as opposed to another pilot. They then do see going beyond that to uh, certificated uh, operations that require two pilots, but not to replace the second pilot as much as to supplement them. Because even when things go sideways in difficult conditions, having some a third set of eyes, so to speak, or ears, or something else out there to say what's going on, uh, or help out with some information could be useful. They never gave me the impression that they're going to go after the, you know, replacing an actual co-pilot. I don't. He's he was too focused on safety um, to to think that that an AI at 
any time in our lifetimes is going to be sufficient to take pilots out of the cockpit with passengers and back. So we know the technology could end up going in that direction. We certainly know that even today, there are plenty of businesses, airlines in particular, that are looking to push for that even today. He doesn't have – that's not part of his product roadmap to to get rid of those you know additional bodies in the front. Um which, you know, which isn't to say that it couldn't be used that way down the road, but that's not part of his plan. And as a strategy, I mean, I, I think it makes sense to do it uh, stepwise or incrementally like this because it, at this point, it, it's non-threatening, right? You're not talking about eliminating a human being. And so uh, in that regard, uh, it's kind of not surprising that you saw so much interest and support from other pilots at Oshkosh uh, because it's it's something that's meant to improve their uh, piloting ability, not replace it with something else. So pretty cool. Yeah. My, I was initially, when I just read the press release, which is why I like to go beyond the press release and talk to the people that are coming up with these ideas. When I initially heard of this digital co-pilot, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm probably not alone. The first place my head went was connect it to the autopilot, take me out of the plane. You know, so that was the first place I went. But I'm really pleased that when I spoke with Mirko, that that was not where they were going. At least that wasn't in their plan. So what do you other pilots think? Well, first of all, I, I'd like to find out, Hillel, where, where were they on the uh, on the showgrounds? Were they in one of the buildings or in a small tent outside a building? or They were in one of the large hangars. Do you know, I think that is probably one of the beauties of Air Venture over the years that I, I can remember going is that if you have the time, and that's always uh, at a at a shortage uh, around Oshkosh, but it is that if you have the time to just wander the aisles and and look around at some of the things that companies say they are doing, you'd often find one that you go, Okay, I've got to find out how they're doing this. And and you go up and talk to these people, and, and they have the most incredible ideas you'd ever want to hear, like like Goose. Uh, and I, I would just be fascinated uh, when I would come back and say, oh, you know what else I saw? What were the, the, this company, and they're building... And, and you name it, because I've had that happen a couple dozen times. And that's, again, that's really one of the great uh, things about going to Oshkosh. Yeah, it was interesting. This year, they did not have uh, the Innovations hangar tent, or um, they used to have a, it wasn't there every year. It's only been like, I think 19, I think, sorry, 2016 through 2019, maybe. Um, and you, I would typically expect to find these kind of things there, but they didn't have that that tent this year. So um, you see a lot of these things now in the big hangars. They actually, they held a press conference in the new media center, um, which is, is they, they offered to, for me to come visit them in the hangar. And I'm like, I have a, I have a booth I can use at the press center. Why would I go to the hangar? So um, it was really a, a nice setup this year. And uh, yeah, but I completely agree. Um, you, you hear, you, you know, certain things are, are really fully baked and then you have everything from, you know, vaporware to fully baked all over Oshkosh. And, um, this was one of those ideas that just, you know, when you have, if you use Siri or use Alexa, uh, or anything like it and you fill it with the right information, it's surprising how far along that technology is. And, and then you add the ML and the AI the machine learning and the artificial intelligence to it. Um, and of course, 
miniaturized. Now you've got you, you know so much storage capacity in a very small space that you know, we wouldn't have ever dreamed of trying to do any of this stuff without the internet. But they're talking about doing it with the under internet, which is totally doable in something the size of maybe you know four packs of cards stuck together. Did you get any information, Hillel, about pricing? Yeah, it's actually not that expensive, at least not yet. Um, beta users will get to, I don't recall off the top of my head whether the beta users have to buy the unit and then they get free service for some period of time forever, whatever. But the the base unit is for the hardware and then it's a subscription model for the updates and everything else that you'd imagine. Even that wasn't ridiculously priced. I found I thought that the cost of the hardware was somewhere in the two hundred dollar range, and um, maybe a little bit plus or minus. And then the subscriptions were were quite reasonable. We any of us who fly with an, an iPad uh, and a and a connected panel are easily paying. If you've got Garmin. Uh, pilot and for flight, you're probably shelling out over a thousand dollars a year, and that's just for basic VFR and IFR, and doesn't include Canada and the Caribbean and Mexico. It's just forty eight lower forty eight. So we're probably shelling out over a thousand dollars a year just for basic stuff, and and this is going to be well under that uh, from the pricing that they showed me. Yeah, I can think of a couple of uses that uh, that I would like. First one comes to mind is emergencies. Yeah, it would be really great to have it kind of talk me through the, you know, the checklist required because frankly, uh, sometimes in certain emergencies, you've got multiple checklists and to kind of switch from one then to the next and so on. There's, you know, time lost doing that. So I, I can see that as being a value. And what I would really love would be if it could spot the traffic and go, hey, it's just slightly below the ridge to the right of that cloud <laughs> you know, because that would be phenomenal. Of course, you'd have to uh, have that aligned for, you know, where your eyes are located because the view is going to be different from the, you know, the left or the right. And of course, I love it when it's fairly quiet in the cockpit when I fly. So I would, I would need the mute button on it. <laughs> you know, the, the button that says, hey, I don't want to hear from you unless I ask yeah. to hear from you. Yeah, that was my question earlier. And you probably know exactly what I was get referring to when the GPS tells you how far or close you are to some restricted airspace or not other. So just, just mode C requirements, even you're flying between mode C's and it says, you know, you, uh, airspace in 10 minutes. And I'm like, I know that's, that's 60 miles from the nearest airport. And I don't, I don't care about that. And so those kind of things would nice, be nice to tell to shut up. But, but I had to, uh, I had to smile when you mentioned something earlier about the, the metal gymnastics of crossing restrictions and uh, I, I, it took me back to a time when in in the right seat of a, a citation, when I was first there, we'd be at, you know, I don't know, 35,000. And, and you'd get a crossing restriction from the center that would say, uh, you know, uh, six Mike Golf uh, crossed, uh, crossed uh, 85 east of uh, the Chicago Heights VOR at and maintained flight level 180. And, uh, uh, you know, and and. Of course, you're you're trying to okay. Let's see what we're going five six miles a minute, and uh, and the guy in the left seat would look over and say, "Okay, so when do we start down?" And I go, "Oh, sh-, you know." And you had to do all that in your head. We didn't even have a pad of paper. Not that it would have helped, but uh, just to think through the process of wait. Let's see. We've got to lose twenty thousand feet, and we're going six miles a minute. Uh, and then we'll pick up speed in the, you know, it, it takes time and God help you if the weather's bad. Uh, but something that would do that. Oh my gosh, that's, that's pretty cool. Well, and 
so the modern avionics, you know, if you're in a glass cockpit, a G1000, G3000, it takes care of all that uh, pretty yeah. easily, which is really, really nice. Right. And and my basic plane, like I said, doesn't even have an autopilot in it. So I have to, I am auto the pilot. And I um and, and like on just on my way to Oshkosh is a perfect example. I encountered IMC where there wasn't supposed to be any according to everything I looked at. And so I had my flight following VFR turned into an IFR flight plan, which is fine. And um, and now I had to deal with setting up for an approach. And I, I also plan ahead. I brought the approach plates with me because of just this type of situation. But now, you know, all the long in my head, I'm doing the, the calculations for where I need to be to where I'm going. And now I have to change all that to some fix out in this, you know, out in space at a different altitude than I've been planning for all this time. And so so now I'm, you know, on the fly having to figure all that out. You know, thankfully, it was not terribly complicated, but I would just as soon have been able to turn to whoever was sitting next to me if they knew what they were doing and say, all right, now I've got to get to this place. How far is it from the runway? And at what altitude do I need to be there? And when do I need to start down? And, um, you know, in a very non-automated cockpit, this thing could be, uh, save me a lot of, you know, mental gymnastics. Yeah, and in the old days, Max West, let me just tell you that it's nice to say the G1000 will do. In the old days, I was the advanced avionics, <laughs> except that I didn't know it. Uh, and it, yeah, but it was it was crazy to think of all the. Uh, but that's what's really great now is to think about how much work we used to have to go through to perform very basic functions, and now th- these systems are keeping they're staying so far ahead of us uh, i grant you i've been through that where it says you're about to enter class c airspace in seven miles i know i got it thank you uh but anyway it, it's still it's still pretty cool rob you just needed to get into the left seat sooner so you were the one saying and when do we start down <laughs> uh yeah the left seat why what's different it's just a different seat you just use your Right hand instead of your left hand. Now that's cool. Even even finding a frequency for like an approach control at an airport that you don't plan on going to, but you just need to know what the approach control is for some reason. And you know that that's I don't know four or five button pushes even on a Garmin glass cockpit just to get to that. You know because it's not it's not in your flight plan. You got to find it. And then you got to go through a bunch of button pushes to get to the frequency thing, and and then scroll through all the different frequencies until you find the you know, approach control for that for that particular airport in that airspace. That you know, hey goose, what's the approach control frequency for that airport right there <laughs> that I don't have time to look up? Very good. All right. Well, hello. Thanks so much for capturing that interview. And of course, as we've said, there there are more coming. We have several more that we'll be playing over the course of the next few episodes. So again, hello. Thanks for a great job. Thank you very much. I try to make it useful to me because I'm not a professional journalist. And so if it's not interesting to me, I can't do the interview. <laughs> very good. On to some listener mail. Uh, we heard from Jacob. He said, you might have heard this plane that crashed on the 91 freeway. I think it was a Piper Cherokee. You can look it up on the web and you'll see a few videos posted. So uh, this is, uh, well, we'll have this in the show notes, one of the articles from CBS News that also includes the video or a video. There are a number of videos that are available, but uh, this one is small plane crash lands on 91 freeway in Corona. And uh, we, I think we've all seen the airplanes in distress or pilots in distress land airplanes 
on the road. Uh, this one seemed kind of a little bit different to me in that there's a lot of traffic on this road. And he kind of put the plane down in between most of the other vehicles. Uh, upon impacting the roadway, the, the plane kind of collapsed into pieces and veered off into the shoulder and there was a fire and all. And the, uh, the occupants of the plane got out, thank goodness. But I don't know. Do you think this was a good idea to put this plane down on that particular freeway at that particular time? I think that's very, very hard to second guess the pilot because we don't know exactly what the experience level of the pilot was. And we also don't know what was surrounding that road. I mean, there might have been solid trees on both sides of the uh, uh, of the road, which when you're, you know, when the engine quits and you're looking at trees, road, trees, road, water, trees, road. Uh, you're, most pilots would try to aim for the road and say, I, I'm just going to do the best I can. Uh, but again, I, I just think it's really impossible to to tell without knowing what else was going on. The one downside of going for you know a big wide road is if you've got a lot of cars there, now suddenly you may have taken your grief and transferred it to some of the people in the cars. That's we true. Had, we had an incident here in Northern California where somebody landed on the highway and the propeller cut into the car and cut the legs of an eight-year-old girl who was in the back seat. And, you know, you look at that and honestly, you really have to be sure that you're not going to be hitting any cars. And that's tough to do unless it's, you know, aren't a lot of cars on the freeway. So, yeah, I think there are times when pilots, you know, have to choose what's best for everybody involved and not necessarily just best for them, which means if there are a lot of cars on the freeway, yeah, maybe you do want to put it in the trees so that you're not sharing your misery with the innocent people below. Yeah. There's no, it's a no-win situation. You know, if they put it in the trees or neighborhood or whatever, they would have been criticized. There's a road right there, you know, by the people that don't think like Max. Obviously, there's, you know, it would be very hard to convince somebody, uh, backseat drivers, Monday morning quarterbacks, whatever you want to call them, that, that the alternative uh, to land in the road um, somebody would have probably said there was plenty of space that could have landed in the road when there was like, you know, three feet. And because <laughs> that they don't know any better, they think that's plenty of space. So I just, it's it's such a, it, it's, it is, it's a terrible situation that you never want to find yourself in. And and um, I'm not disagreeing with Max at all. I just don't think that this pilot would have been in any way vindicated had they decided to put it in the trees. And, you know, one and whatever they did, they were going to get in trouble something with something. Well, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done that. I'm just saying that people consider their own situation. You know, they need to consider factors like that. No, I completely agree. I'm saying they, that this this it's a terrible situation. You hope you never find yourself in it, and you ne- you're, ne- you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. I don't know that there was a really great answer one way or the other. Yeah, sometimes we, you're just screwed. Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right. We also got an email from uh, Jim, and this is on a topic that David and I talked about on the last UAV Digest podcast. Uh, Jim wrote in and said, Today, Archer announced that it had received a $10 million pre-delivery payment from United Airlines on 100 of the company's initial production eVTOL aircraft. And so he said, uh, well, he's asking us, what do we th- what do we think about that? And uh, as I mentioned, David and I talked about this on the other on the other podcast. United had placed an order 
in 2021 for 100 of these eVTOL aircraft. I guess it was valued at about a, a billion dollars. They also had options on another $500 million of this, uh, this eVTOL aircraft. Um, but apparently United didn't put any money down. It was just a, an offer to purchase, I guess. Um, but now we see that United, uh, United has uh, made a pre-delivery payment, this $10 million payment. And I think as we talked about it on the other show, Dave and I kind of conclude that uh, it's a sort of vote of confidence in the concept, uh, in the concept of eVTOL aircraft, in the concept of uh, a major airline committing to or at least putting their money into eVTOL aircraft and uh, hoping to see those integrate into their into their operations. So uh, I think generally a a positive thing is uh, how this has been viewed. Would you say so, David? It's one more step to it not being vaporware. You know, there there are people putting money where their their mouth is in a way. So, and and for Archer, it's an influx of capital that they can move to the next step. You know, uh, you know, other we have so many of these companies that are just limping along looking for that break, you know, and, and can't get any very hard because there's no influx of capital, you know. And in this case, Archer seems to have gotten the influx of capital to move on to the next step. So we'll, we'll see. doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it definitely is a positive for just about everybody. Yep, agreed. All right. Well, we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This has been episode 712. So, you can find the show notes at airplanegeeks.com slash 712. And you can reach us as always via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So, Rob Mark, have you got any closing thoughts? Uh, except for the fact that uh, summer is quickly drawing to an end here in the Midwest. Um, no. and Oh, and the fact that I missed Oshkosh a few weeks ago. Um, but, uh, there's always next year, uh, but no, I don't have any closing thoughts on tonight. All right. How about you, Max Trescott? Well, great to be here with everyone again, as always. And for anybody who wants to uh, follow up with me on anything, just head on out to the Aviation News Talk podcast, or you can shoot an email to aviationnewstalk.com. Just click on contact at the top of the page. And David Vanderhoof. It's ice cream time. Let's wrap this up. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds pretty good. How about you, Hillel? Thanks for joining us for this episode. Thanks for the for the interviews that uh, you recorded at AirVenture. We really appreciate that. Well, I'm always happy to be here. It's always a lot of fun. Glad I had the opportunity to. And uh, whether or not I'm in Captain Jeff's bathroom, you can reach me on Twitter if you have any questions at <laughs> HI11E1. Very good. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me at 30,000feet.com. Uh, all spelled out. And so please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Night, everybody. Night. Thanks for listening.